Okay, so I think most of you were here last week when we continued exploring this pretty broad theme of Sangha or community and looking at it in different ways through different lenses. And so last week we were exploring some heart qualities that powerfully support both the formation and the nourishment of Sangha, namely the qualities of dana and chaga. These are both aspects of generosity. So as you may remember, dana is the thing that's being given, the donation itself, and chaga is that spirit of generosity. It's the inner heart quality that motivates the giving. So as we were exploring last week, we can think of dana and chaga together as being kind of the lifeblood of the sangha because they strengthen and nourish our connectedness. And yet, as we were exploring last week, although we might all agree that in principle, generosity is generally a good thing, in everyday life, it's not always so easy to access that spirit of chaga and to offer the dana of our time, our energy, our moral support, our material goods or our money, So we briefly looked at some of the things that can get in the way of generosity, focusing on the powerful influence that some of our dominant mainstream conditioning is affected by, and how it's affected or infected by the values of capitalism. And as many of you named last week, Capitalism tends to promote competitiveness and individualism and consumerism and extractivism and short-term thinking, to name just a few pretty unfortunate aspects of this system. So with that recap as framing, this evening I'd like to continue exploring how that same type of conditioning can interfere with our ability also to experience our connectedness with each other and beyond that with all forms of life. So we can think of Sangha as a web of connections with each other in the context of these weekly meetings, but also, as I've been emphasizing in these last few weeks, these connections extend out into wider society and they're informed, impacted by the broader social conditions that this Sangha operates in. And at the same time, the values that we strengthen within Sangha, they have the potential to flow out and to positively affect our connections with our families, our friends, our neighborhood, our workplaces, and even beyond to include the natural environment and all living beings. Now at first, perhaps this expansion of our interconnectivity It might sound to some of you so vast as to feel quite abstract. But as our Dharma understanding deepens, it becomes more and more clear that we're not nearly as separate and autonomous as we might like to think we are. So coming back to Thich Nhat Hanh again, because he's done such beautiful work exploring Sangha, This is how he describes what he calls the insight of interbeing. So he says, about 30 years ago, I was looking for an English word to describe our deep interconnection with everything else. I liked the word togetherness 
but I finally came up with the word interbeing. The verb to be can be misleading because we cannot be by ourselves alone. To be is always to interbe. If we combine the prefix inter with the verb to be, we have a new verb interbe. To interbe and the action of interbeing reflects reality more accurately. We, are, we inter are with one another and with all life. He goes on to say, there's a biologist named Lewis Thompson, Thomas, whose work I appreciate very much. He describes how our human bodies are, quote, shared, rented, and occupied by countless other tiny organisms without whom we couldn't, quote, move a muscle, drum a finger, or think a thought. Our body is a community, and the trillions of non-human cells in our body are even more numerous than the human cells. Without them, we could not be here in this moment. Without them, we wouldn't be able to think, to feel, or to speak. There are, he says, no solitary beings. The whole planet is one giant, living, breathing cell, with all of its working parts linked in symbiosis. So, our body itself is a community, whether we like that idea or not. And this body is utterly interdependent with dependent on our environment. Again, whether we like that idea or not. So I know many of you here have studied the Satipatthana Sutta with Bhikkhu Analyo. And you might remember in the four establishments of mindfulness, we're invited to contemplate the nature of this body in terms of its four elemental qualities of earth, water, fire, and air. Now, not as elements in the way that we understand that term scientifically today, but as direct experiences of solidity, fluidity, temperature, and motion. So we can directly experience the body in terms of those qualities. And at the same time, as Bhikkhun Alio says, this points to how dependent the body is on those same qualities outside the body. So he says this body is entirely dependent on an adequate supply of these four elements from outside. It can survive without receiving supplies of the earth element in the form of food. He says for a few months at most. don't know if we can survive for months without food. But anyway, definitely weeks. He says our body can survive without being supplied with the water element for just a few days. It can survive being deprived of the fire element in the form of warmth only for a few hours. And it can survive without a supply of the wind element in the form of oxygen merely for minutes. So our body is entirely dependent on these elements. Mostly, though, we don't like to acknowledge that. In societies that are impacted by our dominant mainstream values, most of us live in as much denial of the body's precariousness as possible. And as well, we've lost our connection to the natural world around us, becoming almost completely disconnected and even alienated from it in many cases. 
And in my own experience, that has felt so normal that it's taken me quite a while to recognize that profound loss. And it's only through listening to or reading about the experience of indigenous peoples and people of color from around the world, peoples who have managed to maintain their connection in their culture to nature, that I've even started to understand the extent of my own disconnection. So just one simple example from my own life. Many years ago now, when I was in my early 20s, I was traveling in Indonesia, and I decided to do a hike up one of the volcanic mountain peaks in East Java. And I arranged to be dropped off at the trailhead, and the driver told me that there was only one bus back, and it would be at 3 o'clock that afternoon. So I did the hike, I got to the top, and I appreciated the panoramic landscape and the power of the volcano but I was aware that I needed to get back to the village in time to catch the bus so I was walking back down the mountain and I had no idea what time it was I didn't have a watch with me and this is hard to believe but it was in the era before mobile phones it wasn't that long ago so I started getting just slightly anxious about whether I was going to get back in time to catch the bus And I was below the tree line at that point. From what I remember, I was in some fairly dense forest. But I found a small hut at the side of the trail, and I spoke a little bit of basic Bahasa Indonesia, and so I called out to whoever was inside. I apologized for disturbing them, and I asked them if they could tell me the time. And a woman came out with a confused look on her face and she stood in the doorway and she looked off into the forest and she said, it's just after two o'clock in the afternoon. And I thanked her and I looked in the direction she was looking to try and see where the clock was. And then I realized she was looking at the position of the sun in the sky. And no wonder she had looked confused when I'd asked her to tell her, tell me what time it was because why didn't I just look at the sky? And in that moment I realized how totally ignorant I was of reality and how dependent on technology to the extent that for a moment I had assumed that there was a clock somewhere in the forest. Now maybe that sounds like a fairly benign example of disconnection but that same disconnection is inherent in capitalism, in colonialism, and it has had and is having disastrous effects on the climate, our environment, First Nations people, people of color all around the world, including here in Aotearoa, New Zealand. So I'll come back to this country in a moment, but I just wanted to share a few perspectives from indigenous people and people of color. This is coming from a group of people who were invited to speak to the well-known trauma specialist, Dr. Gabor Mate, who some of you know. And you may have seen his recent uh, discussion with these people on the topic of climate crisis fragmentation and collective trauma. So just as framing for that, a US colleague of mine, Bonnie Duran, a few years ago, she introduced me to the term epistemicide. 
And epistemicide basically means killing ways of knowing. Killing ways of knowing. So, for example, in the Middle Ages, women healers were murdered as witches and their healing knowledge was lost. There was epistemicide against that knowledge. And countless indigenous cultures have had their understanding of the world destroyed by Western science and their ways of living in harmony with the environment and each other and all beings derided as primitive. Now, most of you are probably aware of that to some extent, perhaps a deep extent, but I wanted to share just one perspective of the impacts of this from a First Nation climate activist by the name of Ariel Chequier Deranger, and she lives and works in what's now known as the Treaty 8 territory in Canada. And just to say that some of what she has to say might be quite hard to hear, quite painful. So I just encourage you to see if you can stay present, to orient to those inequalities of generosity and openness, resilience, metta and compassion, to see if you can stay connected, stay in Sangha, even as we receive words and experiences that might be hard to hear. So she says, when it comes to the impacts that we've seen on the land as indigenous peoples, we have to actually start from the beginning. Because climate change for our communities began at first contact. It didn't begin in 1801 when the German naturalist Humboldt noticed that deforestation was changing the landscape. Our people noticed the changes to our landscapes, our identities, our kinships with our species. Keystone species from whatever communities we came from, whether that was the caribou or the seals or the herrings or the frogs, the moose or the bears, we all had these deep, deep kinships. These are part of our relations. And so when we start to see them unravel, these systems start to unravel, whether that's through the hands of colonization or through the extractivism that exists within our territories, uranium mining in the 70s, tar sands extraction in the 90s, and into the common day, our lands are being torn and ripped apart and destroyed. And that's on top of the colonial impacts that we felt from our children being ripped from our homes, our language being stripped from the mouths of our families and our communities, and the forced assimilation tactics. There's trauma upon trauma and upon trauma. And then here we are in 2021, feeling the impacts of climate change. And what this does, this message that it sends to our communities, is that our way of life, those kinships, those relationships that we have with the ecosystems and these places, is not of value. It's of no use in this common, modern world for us to have these relationships. And for me, it hurts my soul. It's like literally seeing your family members becoming sick, becoming ill in front of you, watching them, their health completely disintegrate. And you're saying to everyone, we need to do something. We have to stop this. My relative, my kin, they are dying. 
So it might be painful to take in what Ariel is saying here. But as I briefly named last week, our Dharma practice, at times, it provides consolation, refuge. And at other times, it requires confrontation to help us wake up to the deeper structures that keep us caught in ignorance and, in the process, harming ourselves and others. So tonight, I'm offering a few different voices, different perspectives to help us see what gets in the way of the interbeing that Thich Nhat Hanh is talking about, and to see how taking refuge in the Sangha might help release some of those obstacles. So if nothing else, we at least might have the strength to bear witness, as they say in the Zen tradition, to what's happening, to bear witness instead of turning away from it out of willful ignorance. So some of you may have heard the young Maori climate activist India Logan Riley when she was asked to speak at the opening session of the COP26 United Nations Summit in November last year. And she says, knowing this history shows us that hands and minds made this present world. So it is also hands and hearts and minds that can remake it. And it is indigenous and frontline communities that are leading this remaking. We are keeping fossil fuels in the ground and stopping fossil fuel expansion. We're halting halting infrastructure that would increase emissions and saying no to false solutions. In the US and Canada alone, indigenous resistance has stopped or delayed greenhouse gas pollution equivalent to at least one quarter of annual emissions. What we do works. So for me, that quote highlights a couple of important points. One is that the previous action of hands and minds have created our current reality. But knowing how that happened, knowing the history, helps our current hands and hearts and minds create a different reality. So notice that India included hearts and minds not just minds in that creation. Because we need to use more than just our intellects to change these situations. As they name it, it is communities, and specifically indigenous communities, who are leading this change. Because for the most part, they have more intact connections with each other and with the whole natural world that gives them the strength to act effectively. Now, in naming that, I don't want to in any way suggest that it's up to First Nations people, Indigenous people, to solve the problems that dominant society is creating. But perhaps listening to these voices and hearing the perspective of Indigenous peoples, maybe it can help us get a clearer sense of where dominant culture has gone wrong and how we might start to heal those wrongs. So I'd like to see if I can offer, play a short video clip now of one more voice, just about five minutes long. And this is from the Nigerian Yoruba activist and author Bayo Akomolafe. And again, he's speaking as part of that climate crisis, fragmentation and collective trauma dialogue that I referenced earlier when I quoted Ariel Chekwia Derange. So I'll see if I can make this work. 
um, after my dear sister Ariel spoke, I didn't feel like saying anything else. Um, it's like it's like everything that needs to be said. And I thank you for speaking that way, and my dear uncle as well for bringing that in. As the water started to dry out in Lake Chad, the farmers and their goat herders started to come down, you know, into the hinterlands, into Nigeria, and that caused conflict. And now we have wars, you know, in, in the middle belt. We have farmers and goat herders and more stationary communities always at their necks, fighting each other. This, these are the unexpected effects of climate change. But like my sister also said, you know, climate change isn't global warming. It's colonization. It's the legacies of extractivism and displacement and colonization. Yes, Humboldt didn't discover it in 1801. In the 15th century, 11 million people were taken across the Atlantic Right, that was climate change. I don't, I don't understand how to think about climate change except to think about it through the prisms of the slave ship traveling across the Atlantic. That was climate change if you, if you could ever speak about it. And um, in carting those souls, in taking those souls, stealing their bodies in this global, um, global solar labor project, um, they dismantled the systems with which we relate to each other and um, disrupted the, the, the languages with which we meet the gods and the goddesses and the relationalities that thread our own worlds. And so there is a very, very critical sense in which we're being invited to notice that um, uh, what scientists you know, call the Anthropocene as this urgent point where we must galvanize the entire planet into this cautionary tale of noticing that we're in trouble, that it's not just a symptom of something gone wrong, that it is connected with decades, hundreds of years of displacement and denial and repression and oppression and colonization. It is not just arriving at the point, we must notice the cracks as well, and that we are in this place we are in right now, because of this humanizing, I think someone once called it a brutal humanism. This attempt to separate us from the world, this attempt to create a metabolic rift, to, ins to insist that we are individuals, right? I, I think of the anthropos or the individual as the product of modernity. And so what, what modernity is trying to do is to carve us out of our kinships with the world around us and to insist that we are our own. We are atomic Newtonian creatures, and that the only way to be in the world is to live as separate, or as separately as we can. Um, my people are learning to um, find other stories. Um, I should say at this point that I don't even speak my language, and that's an effect of climate change. Because I grew up in the wake of colonial departure, I grew up learning to think that English was the only legible or respectable form of community. Okay. So circling back to where we started with this invitation to think more broadly about what could taking refuge in the Sangha mean, we also 
need to find other stories that can help us to connect more deeply with each other and the world around us. And being in Sangha can provide an opportunity to train in doing just that. So we get to practice being with difference, accepting difference, opening to a variety of perspectives that might help us to see not only our individual blind spots, but our cultural conditioned blind spots too. Now, of course, this can be challenging at times, but I've been partly inspired to bring some of these things forward because of an online course that I've been doing over the last six weeks. And it's offered by my good friends and colleagues, Rosie Doris and Nick Redfern. And they've brought together the Relational Meditation Practice of Insight Dialogue together with a training that is based on the work of Joanna Macy. Many of you know she's a long-time environmental activist. And this training is called Active Hope. Active Hope. And I found that it has helped to do exactly what it says. It's about finding and offering our best response to global issues in this time of unfolding crisis. And it offers tools that help us to face the mess that we're in, as well as find and play our role in the collective transition or the great turning towards a society and a way of being that supports the flourishing of all life. So this is a training that's freely available online. And if anything that I shared here tonight was of interest, maybe you might consider taking a look at that training, possibly even working through it with a friend or two. So I think that's quite a lot already. I'll finish it here, because I would like to have time for group reflection, and this time we'll stay with the whole group. So thank you very much for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.